0: We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. When he was playing basketball, Dikembe Mutombo was also using his wealth to accomplish things. He was busy building hospitals in his home country of Congo. Retire? No. Building hospitals was his calling. It's what he loved doing. Other famous athletes have less generous and more selfish pursuits, but no less drive. They want to transform their wealth and success into real-world possessions. John McEnroe, he collects art. The F1 star Lewis Hamilton, perhaps not unsurprisingly, has a fleet of cars, including a 1966 Shelby 427 Cobra. That car is worth $5 million. Hey, Mike Tyson owns Tigers. And yet there's one athlete whose preferred outlet has been making news. He's been whispered about and insulted. And why? Why does retired NFL Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre face such scrutiny for his one love? The Mississippi Free Press put together this extensive timeline of efforts by Favre to help build not one, but two volleyball facilities at schools his daughter attended. Brett Favre loves building volleyball courts. It's what he does. It's his post-career passion. Does this not comport with our outmoded ideas of what's an allowable pursuit for an oh-so-manly football hero? Or is his Wrangler jeans-wearing image not fitting well with the bun-hugging specter of women's volleyball, or is it because the funds for his volleyball-building hobby, nay, passion, come from non-traditional revenue streams? Newly released text messages reveal that NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre had much more involvement than once believed in moving millions
1: of federal welfare dollars intended to help low-income families to instead pay for a new volleyball facility where his daughter played. Messages released in a new court filing allege Favre sought reassurances from a nonprofit executive that the public would not learn
0: of his actions. Oh, that's it. Welfare. And there's the text message from Favre to the friend of the former governor who was in the middle of the deal asking, quote, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? No, well, not for five years and now I just told you about it. Favre earned almost $150 million in his playing career, millions more, maybe tens of millions more in endorsements along the way. Mississippi is the second or third poorest state in the country. Favre's daughter only played one year of indoor volleyball. And the Southern Miss Volleyball Wellness Center is up and it cost approximately $7 million. $5 million came from funds set aside for the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Farve's is not a needy family, by the way. Brett Farves does not currently face criminal charges. He has hired a lawyer, Eric Hirschman, the guy who testifies before the January 6th committee with the bat on his wall that says justice. Yeah, wrong sport and wrong sentiment. It is a love for volleyball court building that drives the former Packer great and Viking good. Follow that dream, Brett, and make sure nobody subpoenas your texts. On the show today, you know what? I'm keeping it football, a sport that tells us a little bit about ourselves, Herschel Walker and the spiel. But first, let me play a section from a fantasy football podcast I listen to. You don't need to know anything about football, fantasy football, or this particular player they're talking about, Kyle Pitts. Just know he's a super talented player who's having a terrible year, and the host of the Fantasy Footballers is talking about How even though he knows Kyle Pitts is atrocious this year, he can't quit Kyle. I'm not, I can't, I will never bench him. I will never do it. I will never put Kyle Pitts on my bench. It will never happen. It will never happen for anybody that has him. All of us live with the combine rolling in our heads, waiting. I can't trade him because I can't be alive if I trade him and he blows up. I can't be alive then. Quitting is hard, but it can be good for you, and the world generally does not see it that way. Here to reorient your viewpoint is Annie Duke. Annie's new book is Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and Annie joins me next. The aphorisms around quitting are all wrong. You know them. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. Right, winners never quit. Warren Buffett buys a stock and he's never sold one in his life. Or John Stevens, who stuck with his job as a management consultant. Oh, you don't recognize the name John Stevens? He now goes by John Legend. He quit the Boston consulting for- firm and he arranges music, not organizational charts. The ideas around quitting are so flawed. And in fact, they're sometimes fatally flawed. Annie Duke lays it all out in her new book, Quit! The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie, returning just guest and returning just host. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on again.
2: Thanks for having me on again.
0: So as you lay out in the book, uh, the psychology around quitting is not only uh, interesting and tends to push us towards not quitting. We don't really recognize that the psychology is such that we have a non-quitting bias. So that's a little different from most heuristics and most common psychologies. I mean, mostly we know that, oh yes, in general, I'm inclined to try out the sweet thing, or in general, uh, my brain is driving me towards some sort of tropism. But we're not aware that we're convincing ourselves not to quit more than we should.
2: You know, I, I I think that's really true. There's obviously this really popular narrative around grit. Um, and let me just say off the bat, I want to be really clear. Grit is an amazing book. Uh, it's everybody should go read it. Angela Duckworth is a genius. Um, but I think that... Um, I think her work is misinterpreted because if you if you read her work, what she's really saying is find something that you really love that's worthwhile. And then you have to stick to it, even though it's hard, right? Because sometimes it's going to be hard. And where how people read that is just kind of like grit is good, right? Period. Um, I saw something on Twitter where someone was saying, it took me 14 months to raise my seed round, so never give up. And it's like, well, when does never give up become bad advice? The problem is that uh, if you're at the top of Everest and there's like a snowstorm rolling in, you probably want to give up. And we know that people will often not give up in those circumstances. But I think we've so, it's so sort of built into the way that we think about the world that perseverance is sort of synonymous with character, right? Or character building. Even as, as parents, you know, when our children express to us that they don't like an activity we're doing, we're like, you have to stick to it, it will build character. And quitting is considered a vice or even like cowardice. So I think there's this this huge negative bias toward quitting. And then what we don't realize is that there's all these very common biases that people have probably heard of, of, things like the sunk cost fallacy that really push us toward quitting too late. And in the end, that all kind of rolls into this thing that we don't even realize is happening that usually... If we quit on time, if we quit at the objectively perfect, like perfect moment, it would actually feel very, very early to us. And the flip side of that is that when we do actually get around to quitting, it's probably much later than we should have. And I think like Mike, like you know just intuitively, like, you know, when you're if you're in a relationship and you break up or you or you quit a job, mostly you look back and you say, Oh, I should have done that sooner.
0: No, maybe we have survivor's bias, you know the people <laughs> the people who look back and rue that are still walking around and functional members of society as opposed to you're not able to interview them because they're living on the street or just you know rending their garments after their failed relationship
2: well i mean there's there's i would say that there's some possibility of that except that the science is so strong that we just don't really quit on time and i would say that the survivorship bias actually goes in the opposite direction you know that we could think about the fact that if you stick to something, right, like if you, you know, we've all heard the stories of like founders sleeping in their basements or, or trying to raise money for 14 months or two years or three years, you know, just trying to power through and make it or the people who um, power through the mountain climbing or run the marathon, you know, on the broken ankle or whatever, when they actually successfully do that, they say, look, stick to things and you'll succeed. Because. What the confusion is, is that in order to have succeeded something, you will have had to stuck to it. But that, that's true in retrospect only. It's not true in prospectively. So I actually think survivorship bias works actually in the opposite direction, which is getting us to stick to things because we see people who are successful and we know that they just stuck to it through the hard times. And then we think that like, well, if I stick to things, then that's going to create success.
0: I think with some, when we've conceptualized the value of quitting, for some people, maybe not ourselves, we could see where it would make sense. Uh, Warren Buffett, who I mentioned before, all good investors have to know the buy, the hold, the sell part. And or I'm thinking of also someone like Quincy Jones, who is at any one time producing, you know, three different albums and executive producing a TV show. And if he really gets sucked in to a huge project that takes up all his attention, it's going to be bad. But in all these cases, it's someone with a lot of resources and quitting or the story you tell of the concert violinist who had the ability to become, you know, an amazing business person or, you know, go into academics. It it rests on resources, so I wonder how much this advice would hold to someone who doesn't have that many options. Not many of us do. Someone who pretty much has to take, say, a minimum wage job, either you know, uh, because they're young and inexperienced, don't have the education, is quitting a luxury.
2: So, look here. Here's the thing about all decision making is that decision making is a luxury. I mean, period. Um, and some people have more, you know, some people have much more access. Some people have many, many more options and the more options you have, the more access you have generally the higher, the quality of the decisions that you sort of have the space to be able to make, right? Like we know, for example, from books like scarcity, what happens to people cognitively when they're in, uh, positions of scarcity, that being said, right. For any individual, no matter where you sit, more options is better. Okay, so that's just true. So it's absolutely true that somebody who is in a more disadvantaged position like may have to stay in their job because it's their paycheck and they don't have the luxury of quitting and not having a job for even two weeks. It would be a complete disaster for them. That doesn't mean, though, that they can't try to create other options for them while they're doing that job. You know, and I even say like there's really simple ways that you can think about this, that, um, you know, when you're going into school, like research the majors or the things you can be doing that would keep the most opportunities open for you. And that's no matter what type of schooling you're going into. Right. Like, how am I going to get the most opportunities? Right. Think about what can I do in parallel? right? So if you're in a job, can I be exploring other jobs that might be available? Could I be doing training at night? Do I have the ability, maybe if I have to do two jobs to make sure that they're different enough from each other, that one might be able to develop into something that might get me a little bit more money. But if I am somebody who has very limited options, that extra option that I might create for myself, that extra opportunity actually matters a lot more to me than it does to somebody who has lots and lots and lots of opportunities right and so this is something that i think is very important about understanding quitting is that you can kind of plan ahead for it a little bit and say if i want to be able to move to the best opportunities that are available to me then having more opportunities is better and so that's true both on an individual level i think like for people um to be thinking about and going in and saying i have some agency in terms of trying to create some you know even one more opportunity or half an opportunity for myself, but also as a society, right? I mean, this is a lot of what this idea of uh, equal access means, right? Is that we want to build a society where people have more equal access to the opportunities that the society can offer to you, so that you, so that more people do have the luxury of being able to quit more
0: often. So I knew about, and I think many of my listeners will know about some of the psychology involving quitting uh that tends to show that we stick to things maybe a little too often a couple of the big examples of this are the human propensity for loss aversion which is we'd rather not lose something more than we'd rather win something and even if Someone listening to this hadn't heard the phrase loss aversion. They might think about it. You know, would you flip a coin for $100 if you lose or you get $100 if you win? Most people would engage. Why? It's actually the same expected value. It's because of loss aversion. And psychologists, and I even did a report for Radio Lab Show, it's not even just 100, 100. I'll give you 90 if you win, but you give me 80 if you lose. People still want to. Do it. That's one thing. Another thing is the uh, sunken cost fallacy or in poker, what we call being pot committed or thinking you're pot committed, even if you're not. But there are other aspects of to, of uh, the psychology of sticking to it that I hadn't thought of. And one was the, we will stick with our losers, let's say our losing investment or however you want to think about, it. could be stocks, could be the fantasy football player you drafted. We will stick with our losers more in the hope that they'll turn it around. I think that we knew. But people are really bad at selling their winners. They just want to hold on to their winners really often. And there have been a lot of studies as to showing how true that is and why that's true. What did you find out surprising about that?
2: Here's the interesting thing about um, the aphorisms around quitting is that they're all really bad. Uh, Most of them are imploring you to not quit as you open the show with. But there's one and exactly one that encourages you to quit. And that aphorism is quit while you're ahead. And that too is quite bad because the human tendency is actually to quit while you're ahead. So uh, I'll give you, this is I think such a fun example of this. So there was a study uh, done by Colin Kammerer uh, along with a bunch of colleagues, including Richard Thaler, Nobel laureate, Um, And they looked at uh, back in the 90s, right? Like when people drove taxi cabs before Uber, Uh, basically the way it would work is if you were a cab driver, you usually didn't have your own medallion, which is the license that allows people to drive cabs. Instead, you would rent it for 12 hour shifts. Okay, so you're paying no matter how long you're in your cab, you're paying for the cab for 12 hours. So what they wanted to look is that they had to still clock in, clock out. And they wanted to look at the trip sheets for all of these cab drivers to see sort of like, what was their algorithm for choosing like, when did they drive and when didn't they? And what they found was this really interesting behavior from the cab drivers, which was when things were slow, when there weren't a lot of fares around, they tended to drive forever, sometimes like the whole shift. So that's obviously not, you know, refusing to quit. But here was the really interesting thing. When the fares were really good, when there were lots and lots of people around to pick up, they quit really early. So that's kind of weird. So that's quit while you're ahead. So obviously, look, if a rational person looking at that says, if there's lots of people to pick up, you should be driving then. And if there's no one to pick up, you probably shouldn't be wasting your time in the cab. And yet the drivers were flipped. They were flipped so badly. That if they were actually sort of perfect at that decision making, they would have made 15% more money than they actually were um, with their own behavior. And even if they were random, even if they just said, I'm going to get the cab and I'm going to drive five hours a day, right? So they just arbitrarily picked a number that they were going to drive. They would still earn 8% eight more than they, are, than they were with their strategy. Because what their strategy was, was I have a goal. Remember, I said there's a downside to goals. I have a goal. This is what I'd like to earn every day. And as soon as I earn it, I'm done. So what happens is that the minute that that they hit that goal, they're now ahead in their heads and they want to quit. And that can happen if it happens in an hour, which is obviously like a, they should be using those other 11 hours to try to make more money. But it also kept them in their cabs because they were short the goal. And so they didn't want to quit when they were behind and they stayed in the cab. Okay, so you can see this exact same behavior with retail traders, right? So they put in these things called stop losses, which are like if you buy a stock at fifty, you just say, okay, if it goes to thirty-five, then then I'm going to sell it.
0: Right. It's a way to impose discipline on yourself. But when you when you make the investment you say, I don't want I don't want it to be around 35 and then dithering no. I, right now I've decided I'm out at 35.
2: Right. And it turns out that uh, retail investors actually cancel those stop loss orders a lot and they hold on to the losers trying We can think about it this way trying to get their money back. Okay, so they're trying to get that like if you know it's at 35 they want that $15 back. But they can also put in something called a take gain order. Which is, I'm going to buy this at 50. It gets if it gets to 65, I'm, then I'm going to sell it, and I'm committed to selling it at 65 and holding it up until it gets to 65. And it turns out, and this is work from Alex um, Emas, um it turns out that they cancel those two, but they don't cancel them to hold them; they cancel them to sell them before it gets to 65. Now let's think about why that is, right? If you're a loser and you sell it, you have to take the sure loss. That's the moment that you go from like, I've got this loss on paper of $15, but now I'm selling it. And that means that now I surely lose. I, I now for sure am I going to lose. And this is something Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate, calls sure loss aversion. So we don't like to convert losses on paper into short losses. And it stops us from quitting, this aversion to sure losses. But on the reverse side with the take gain, people sell it, before they get to 65, because they don't want that gain to disappear. So they want to take a sure gain. So even if it's $5 instead of $15, they don't want to risk the stock going back down and them losing that gain on paper and say that so they hold on to it. So we can see kind of both sides of the equation that our calibration around when do we quit things and when do we persevere is actually really messed up.
0: And is it because we just get nervous? We don't have the brains of a Stuart Butterfield or a computer. I know you talk a little bit about it's sort of this commitment we have at one point to have bought the stock becomes something of our identity. What is that human flaw?
2: This is the interesting thing about quitting is that you can, and the reason why I sort of felt the need to to write the book is because you can pull this thread through so many of the cognitive biases that people know about. So one of them that you mentioned is the sunk cost effect or the sunk cost fallacy. And that's just that you think that the money that you lost in the stock, you you will, you know, you want to get back and you take it into account and in thinking about whether you should continue to do it going forward. And you can see this, for example, in like big public works projects where, um, you know, people are like, well, why don't you shut it down? And they say, well, we don't want to have wasted the taxpayer money that we've already spent on it. Right. But that's silly because that money is already spent. And what really matters is, is it worthwhile to spend another dollar on this or should that dollar go to something else? And so we think about waste as a backward looking problem. Like I don't want to have wasted what I've already spent as opposed to a forward looking problem. Should I waste more. So that stops us from stopping because we don't want, we're, we have the spirit of waste. So that's sunk cost. We have endowment, which is ownership over things. We own our ideas. We own um, the things that we build and we don't like to give up ownership of things that we have. Um, there's also status quo bias, which is we have a preference for the way things are and we don't like to switch to new things. And when you talked about loss aversion before, um, yes, we, we don't like to incur losses from, from choices that we make. But what's really interesting is we're much more tolerant of losses from th- the thing we're doing than losses from something new. So what's interesting is that you'll find that people would rather stick to something that isn't working, even if they know it's not working, because they don't want to switch to something new and say, but what if that doesn't work out? And you'll hear that, like I'll talk to people who are in uh, jobs that they hate. And I'll say, you know, they'll say, should I quit? And I'll say, well, what's the chances that you're going to be happy in a year? And they'll say zero, because I already know, like, it's a terrible job. And of course, at that point, you're like, what's what's the confusion? Why aren't you going and take, getting a new job? And they say, but what if I hate that one, too? Yeah. So that's that, like, we have this aversion to ambiguity. And then what you just mentioned, which I think is so important, is that the things we do constitute who we are. We don't want to abandon our identity—that's actually the the hardest thing to quit. I think that people have the intuition, and I think that this is part of the problem with our political discourse today. That if I present you, Mike Pesca, with some facts that show that a belief that you have isn't true, right? Like you, Mike Pesca, believe like there's some sort of vast conspiracy, and Donald Trump is going to be reinstalled as president on March fourth, twenty twenty one, and now twenty twenty one, March fourth arrives. And this thing does not happen, so we have this idea that obviously you're you know you're going to abandon your belief because there's now demonstrable proof that the thing that you believed didn't happen.
0: Yeah, people from people from outside the cult think that, right?
2: Right, but the problem is these people, their identity is wrapped up. Like, think about you know uh, Jim Jones or or whatever. They've they've usually like abandoned their families to these beliefs. They've often given up a lot of their worldly goods to these beliefs. And so what happens is that when the world, when the facts of the world collide with your identity. Right. It creates cognitive dissonance. Right. So now things aren't lining up for you, which is like very uncomfortable and in order to resolve the dissonance, we dismiss the facts. And there's all sorts of ways that we can do that, right? Well, it's just the establishment and, you know, I mean, whatever, we all, we've all we all heard all of that. And I think that that really goes against that.
0: Annie Duke is many things, her latest achievement, is the book Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Thank you so much, Annie.
2: Thank you for having me back, Mike.
0: And now the spiel. To fans of his professional teams, Herschel Walker was a force, a phenom, a fantastic player in the USFL, a good one in the NFL. To the people of Georgia, he is something more. They say football is like religion in Georgia. It's not because in religion, there are different denominations. In football, there are the Georgia Bulldogs. And in football, Walker was the greatest, fleetest, most punishing, most nimble, and most awe-inspiring player Georgia Bulldog fans had ever seen. Put another way, to almost every Georgian of greater than 45 years of age, Herschel Walker was the most transcendently spectacular participant at the thing they cared most about in the world. And to Georgians under the age of 45, there are lots of clips on YouTube. Now, I'm about to tell you a truth so obvious you might resent me for feeling the need to say it, but none of that qualifies Herschel Walker for higher office. And for a U.S. Senate seat, Walker is less qualified still. During his campaign, Walker has made odd comments about airflow, has been revealed to have fathered a few children out of wedlock, that odd phrase, but Walker did have a couple kids that he hadn't acknowledged even though he was criticizing single parenthood in the black community. Walker doesn't have many policy proposals. He positions himself as simply not the verbose orator that his opponent, the Reverend Raphael Warnock is. For all his lack of qualifications, he is a Republican in Georgia, and he does have the support of Donald Trump, and voting against him is a little like voting against, I'm not going to say Jesus, but maybe both of the apostles named James. That said... The smart political prognosticators, Mike Murphy among them, put their finger on a danger in dealing with Walker. On his Hacks on Tap podcast, the former Arnold Schwarzenegger advisor warned about elite dismissiveness. The more the establishment kind of condemned him as a big, dumb movie star, it, it helped. So the contempt coming out of Washington for Walker from, you know, fancy elitists like my friend Gibbs here... <laughs> It's not the weapon they think it is. With that in mind, I noted with interest and some concern last Saturday's SNL skit, where Kenan Thompson played the former football star. You see, science don't understand. Everybody's talking about climate, but what we really should be focusing on is pulling Hawaii closer. Oh, oh, yeah. Bring that climate over here. <laughs> That's a good idea, I yeah. like that. I they like don't it. need it, they little so that's something we need to look at very very closely now if elites are out of touch i wondered would this elite out of touch mockery read to the voters of georgia as snobbishness or would it just seem as funny or would it not seem like anything at all just something going on on a tv show they don't watch i similarly noted with interest, an article in the New York Times Magazine, which was critical of Herschel Walker's apolitical stance as a high school student at a time of tumult and anti-black violence in his small hometown of Wrightsville, Georgia, the racial divide Herschel Walker couldn't outrun. That was the title. The 60-year-old man, Herschel Walker, who's engaged in a Senate campaign, should be faulted for dodging vital public issues. But to apply that standard to a 17-year-old whose promise might have been jeopardized by one false step, I don't know. Was the New York Times applying standards of a man living in one circumstances retroactively to a child trying to get out of another? All of these worries and considerations do seem to have been made moot, however, Because yesterday, the Daily Beast reported that Walker, who campaigns as opposing abortion under all circumstances, was reported to have paid for a woman's abortion in 2009. So Walker sat for the friendliest interview possible with Fox's Sean Hannity and proceeded to botch any semblance of coherence in his answers. So they're claiming that on September 12th of 2009, that the woman has a receipt for an abortion. They're claiming
2: that five days later on September 17th, you sent a $700 check and that you sent it in a Get Well card. The Get Well card, it looks like it's included with your signature in the article. Have you seen it and is
1: that your signature? Uh, I haven't seen it, uh, but you know, I can tell you, uh, I send out so many Get Well, uh, send out so much of anything, but I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion, and it's a lie. And I'm going to continue to fight. You know, I tell you, that's what they want. They want this seat. But right now, they've energized me even more. And they're not going to take the seat. So they better work even harder because they've jeopardized my kids. They've jeopardized
0: my family. One of Walker's sons, Christian, who is an openly gay pro-MAGA social media influencer, tweeted this yesterday, quote, I know my mom and I would really appreciate if my father, Herschel Walker, stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had to move over six times in six months running from your violence. For his part, Hannity asked Walker another question that the candidate had to know was coming. What about the $700 check? Is there anybody you can remember sending that much money to?
1: Well, I, I send money to a lot of people, and that's what's so funny. And, and let's go back to my part. You know, I, I do scholarship for kids. I give money to people all the time because I'm always helping people because I believe in being generous. God has blessed me, and I want to bless others. And I got into this race because I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I always tell everyone that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. So whoever uh been out there want to lie on Herschel Walker, you're lying on the wrong one. It's best that you to go somewhere else because I'm going to win this seat for the great people of Georgia because Georgia deserves to have a senator that
0: trusts in the Georgia people and not no one that trusts in Joe Biden like Senator Warnock does. So to summarize, the accusation of funding an abortion is a lie, but all the details may be true. And he doesn't know. He sends a lot of people money and cards and wasn't interested enough to see if it was his signature, but also Jesus and family in Georgia and Joe Biden. I got it. I don't know if any amount of snideness can make for more mockery than Herschel Walker has brought down on himself. As the Bible says, I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. That is from the Book of Lamentations. Chapter and verse should be assigned to all the Republicans who chose Herschel Walker as their candidate in an otherwise and maybe still very winnable Senate seat. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, who joined the staff. When he did so, podcasting was largely a grinded-out ground game. The forward pass was something to be used with caution. Never inside your 30-yard line. By the time Wara was through, the forward pass was a primary offensive weapon. Known as the Galloping Ghost, just senior producer, Joel Red Patterson, drew 36,000 to Cubs Park, now known as Wrigley Field, to see his pro debut against the Chicago Cardinals. Ten days later, more than 70,000 packed New York's polo grounds to see Patterson and Wara take on the New York Giants. During her incredible career, Michelle Pesca filled the shoes of owner, manager, player, and promoter and was an influential leader among podcast executives. Michelle perfected the T formation, propelling Peachfish Productions to their stunning 73-0 NFL title win over Washington in the 1940 championship game. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash gist um Peru, G Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.